Welcome to So Dead, a podcast where sometimes shit gets heavy. I'm Jen Carpenter. And I'm Danny Fairman. Happy True Crime Tuesday. And happy Taco Tuesday, girls and boys. There is nothing funny about today's episode of So Dead, but it is an interesting, horrifying, shocking piece of Michigan history that we felt compelled to talk about. Today we'll be talking about the 2006 Taylor University tragedy. Taylor University is a Christian liberal arts college in Upland, Indiana. It is a private institution set on about 250 acres of rural countryside with a student body of roughly 2,000. So it's a pretty small school, which makes the events that took place that much more awful because everybody knew everybody. April 26, 2006 was a sunny spring day in Indiana. There were just a few weeks left in the semester, and students were preparing for finals and graduation. There was a banquet honoring Taylor's new president at the school's Fort Wayne campus that day, which was about an hour's drive from the main campus in Upland, and a group of food service employees and student workers traveled to Fort Wayne to cater the event. Around 8 p.m., two of the school's passenger vans full of staff and students were headed back to Upland following the banquet when tragedy struck. On Interstate 69, at mile marker 66, a semi-driver by the name of Robert Spencer fell asleep behind the wheel of his rig, crossed the center median, and collided with a Taylor University van carrying four staff members and five students. Killed instantly were 53-year-old university employee Monica Falver, 22-year-old student Betsy Smith, 20-year-old student Laurel Erb, 22-year-old student Brad Larson, and 18-year-old student Whitney Serac. The only student to survive the crash was 22-year-old Laura Van Ryn, who was in critical condition and was airlifted to a local hospital. Laura Van Ryn was born to Don and Susie Van Ryn on February 13, 1984, in Caledonia, Michigan, which is a small town just outside Grand Rapids. She was the baby of the family, the youngest of four. She had an older sister, Lisa, and two older brothers, Kenny and Mark. Laura graduated from Thornapple Kellogg High School in 2002 and went on to Taylor University, where she majored in communications and minored in public relations. She played soccer volleyball, basketball, and ran track. She sang, played the guitar, and was deeply religious. She was kind to everyone and always happy, which was why her mother called her Sunshine Girl. She met her boyfriend, Aaron, during her freshman year of college. He was a senior, and he had plans to propose to Laura after her graduation, which was just three weeks away at the time of the accident. Laura was employed by Taylor University's Food Services Department, and she rode to the event in Fort Wayne on that fateful day with her friend Sarah, who drove her own car, and co-workers Brad Larson, who'd been a good friend of Laura's for years, and Whitney Sirak. Following the event, Sarah, who was from the Detroit area, had plans to drive home for the weekend. She was getting married in a few weeks and had lots to do to prepare. Laura was supposed to make the trip to Michigan with her. She wanted to surprise her boyfriend for the weekend. But with the end of her senior year of college fast approaching, she had a lot of work to do, so she made the responsible choice and got into one of the vans heading back to the dorms instead. On the trip back to Upland, Laura was seated next to her friend Brad. They were both texting another friend, Julie, who just happened to be on the phone with Laura's older sister Lisa at the time. So this is confusing and this is a lot of names, but basically... Everyone knows everyone. They're all friends. Mm -hmm. Laura Van Ryn and Brad are in the van together on their way back to the school. 
they are texting with their friend Julie, who is also friends with Laura's sister. So Julie's on the front on the phone with Laura's sister, um, and she's texting with Laura and Brad. Right. Okay. So at the same moment, Laura and Brad sent Julie identical texts that read, "Is your choice who you text back first. Julie and Lisa joked on the phone about who uh, Julie should text back first. In the end, she texted them both, but neither of them replied. Laura's father, Don, was at a trade show with her boyfriend, Aaron, who'd become like family. Laura called Aaron on her way back from the banquet and talked to him for a couple of minutes. When they were done talking, he said, you want to talk to your dad real quick? And he handed Laura's father, Don, the phone. Don said, hello, but Laura did not answer. He assumed that the call had just dropped. It wasn't until later that night that Laura's loved ones would learn about the accident. The only student to survive, Laura had been airlifted to Parkview Hospital in Fort Wayne in critical condition. Her family drove through the night uh, to the Indiana hospital to be by her side. Swollen, bandaged, and badly injured, Laura was barely recognizable. She'd been thrown more than 50 feet from the van in the accident and had a badly broken leg, shattered elbow, broken collarbone, and a severe brain injury. She was in a coma, and doctors were initially unsure if she would wake up. Laura's family kept a constant vigil at the hospital. They started a blog to keep family and friends up to date on her progress, and they found themselves with followers from around the world rooting for and praying for Laura. The first person to voice the opinion that something was off was Laura's Aunt Ruth Ann. After visiting her niece in the hospital, who was still in a coma for the first time, um, she was only with her for like a couple of minutes, and she came out and she said to her husband, I don't care what anybody says, that doesn't look like Laura to me. So oh she was gosh. the first person to say it. Right. Um, on May How do you 1st, respond to that? Right. Um, she had her head wrapped, kind of like you would picture someone after like oral surgery. So she's right. swollen. She's completely wrapped. She's in a coma. So... You expect that that person's going to look different anyway. Mm -hmm. And nobody really knows what the person is going to look like. Like the doctors will always prep you to go into a room like, listen, they're in bad shape. You need to be prepared. Exactly. And you don't know what to expect. So if somebody doesn't look like themselves, it's not going to throw you off. Right. That's part of the healing. Exactly. So on May 1st, five days after the accident... Laura opened her eyes for the first time, and she yawned for the first time. So she kind of woke up to some degree, not fully, but, you know, opened her eyes and yawned. Um, Her boyfriend, Aaron, was taken aback by how much bluer her eyes seemed, and her sister couldn't believe that the accident had jarred her head so badly it had actually moved her teeth around a bit inside her mouth. Her mother was shocked to learn that her daughter had a belly button piercing, Mm -hmm. um, which nobody knew about, including Laura's boyfriend. Hmm. So these are little clues, and they're coming, but everyone's just writing them off. Right. A week later, on May 9th, Laura's condition had approved enough that she was moved from the ICU to a regular room, and she started becoming more aware of her surroundings. Um, A week after that, she said her first words to her parents. Um, She said, hi, and she said, good morning. A few days after that, Laura was transferred to Spectrum Health Continuing Care in Grand Rapids near the family's home in Caledonia. So this whole time, they they left their home in Caledonia that night. They went to Indiana, and they right. did not leave until she was well enough 
to be transported back to somewhere closer to home. Right. Um, as Laura's condition continued to improve, her loved ones began to notice more and more things that didn't fit. She often called her sister Lisa by the name Carly. She called her boyfriend Aaron by the name Hunter and told people her name was Whitney. Anytime a family member questioned this odd behavior, medical professionals would assure them that it was normal and it was to be expected with a head injury as severe as Laura's, which, I mean, reading it and reading a lot of the things that, you know, came out and where this story is going, which a lot of people already know because it was a very big story at the time. Mm -hmm. um, I've mentioned a few times, you know, my son's got epilepsy and he has seizures here and there. Um, right. And when he has them, they're very severe and they scramble his brain completely. So during, after, and even sometimes for weeks after, he's not himself. Um, so the whole like saying things that are just out of left field, they make no sense. Behavior sure. that makes no sense. 100%. 100%. Right, right. I believe that because I've seen it. And if you've got doctors telling you, no, this is normal, you know, they've never been through anything like this before. Right. They don't know what to expect. They don't know. They don't know what's normal and what's not. Right. And so when you've got medical professionals telling you, yes, this is, this mm -hmm. is fine. Don't worry about it. Um, why would they, why would they right. worry about it? Right. So. Or question it further. Exactly. Um, but on May 29th, Nearly five weeks after the accident, things started to get really weird. Laura was working on her fine motor skills with a therapist, and when asked to write her name, she wrote the word Whitney. When the therapist asked her if she was sure that was her name, she nodded. When her father questioned why she would do that, the therapist asked if Laura knew anyone named Whitney. Her father explained that one of the students killed in the accident was named Whitney, and the therapist suggested that maybe Laura was sitting beside Whitney in the van or talking to her at the time of the accident, and Whitney was just stuck in her brain. Uh, as Laura's father was wheeling her back to her room, Laura called him a false parent. That night at dinner, family friends visited the Van Rines at the rehab facility. They were taken aback by Laura's appearance and were almost certain that the girl they were looking at was not Laura Van Ryn. Um, so again, you know, how how does a friend see it and the family doesn't? Really simple. Right. They were there from ground zero, from day one when mm -hmm. they didn't even know if she was going to live and she was ballooned up. So they became accustomed to that face. And then right. as the swelling started to go down, um, you know, they, they were already accustomed to her looking that way. They were, it's a thing of like, you're too close. You're too right. close to it. Right. You've been in, just like you don't notice your kids growing until none of their clothes fit them because you right. see them every day and you didn't notice any of these things happening, but all of mm -hmm. a sudden you don't have a baby anymore. You have a toddler right. or you don't have a kid anymore. You've got a teenager right. and it just happens. Um, so, you know, they received a lot of criticism for that, but again, they were just too close. Whereas yeah. someone coming in from the outside who had a picture of Laura in their head looks at this girl who now is not swollen and not mm -hmm. bandaged and bruised and is, that's not her, you know. Can so, you imagine being that person? No. Ugh. So um, Laura's father, Don, talked this whole situation over with Laura's sister, Lisa, about her writing the name Whitney, saying her name was Whitney, calling him a false parent, and then these people saying that is not your daughter all in the same day. Uh, mm -hmm. They both tried to ignore their growing doubts, but Lisa couldn't shake it. 
for the first time, she found herself thinking in terms of if that's really Laura when she thought about her sister. Right. Um, she got up in the middle of the night that night and she dug out a CD from the memorial service that had pictures of all of the victims. Um, and there was a picture of Whitney Serac. And she looked at the picture and she knew those oh. eyes that were bluer than Laura's, the teeth that were just a little bit different. Um, the girl in the hospital wasn't Laura. It was the girl in the photo. Mm. So the next day, Don and Lisa went to visit Laura, as they did every day, and they were confronted by the family friend that had visited them the day before. This person actually couldn't sleep that night because they were so disturbed by the fact that they were positive that the girl that they saw was not Laura, and they actually met uh, Laura's dad in the hospital in the parking lot, caught him before he got there, and was like, look, I really need you to understand that this is not your daughter. You have to do everything you can to verify the identity, find out what they did to identify her, because I just don't think it's her. Right. Um, he promised that he would, and he did. Um, he set out to get answers from hospital officials, and Lisa, Laura's sister, went and attended Laura's therapy session which, with her, which she did pretty much every day. Um, at first, Lisa tried to act like nothing was wrong, but as she was taking Laura back to her room after the therapy session, she kind of wheeled her into a little private area um, so that they could have a conversation, just the two of them. And Lisa asked the girl in the wheelchair her name. The girl said, Whitney. So Lisa asked her what her parents' names were. And the girl said, Sirac. And she said, no, what are their first names? And the girl said, Colleen and Newell. Mm. And with that, Lisa absolutely knew that that girl was not her sister because there was even Laura knew Whitney. They weren't friends. There was no way that she knew Whitney's parents' first names. Right, right. So she knew at that point. Um, at the same time that this is happening, Don was getting concerning information from hospital officials. He learned that the coroner's office that had ID'd the body um, said that there was room for doubt about his daughter's identity. Oh, my gosh. No Room for doubt? Like, isn't that your job, is to identify bodies? I mean, we all make mistakes at work. And you leave room for doubt. I don't think you can make mistakes I know, that that's such a... No, um, I know. No medical procedure had actually been used to verify Laura's identity. They'd found an ID in the vicinity of her body, which if you've seen pictures of this mm -hmm, accident... I have. There was just shit Everywhere, and that was after they removed the bodies and the victims. Mm -hmm. um, so you take that picture and you put nine bodies. Yeah, you're just looking at a mess. Like it was a mess after they took the survivors to the hospital and took the bodies away. So there was just stuff everywhere. The The van was obliterated mm -hmm. by um, a semi-truck. And so right. there were nine people and all of their belongings and pieces of the vehicle. Mm -hmm. So they see an ID lying on the ground. They see a girl about that size with blonde hair, and they're like, oh, this is hers. Mm -hmm. Put it with her, put her in the helicopter, and airlifted her to the hospital. Right. Um, Laura's dad also learned that the Seracs had never actually seen or identified Whitney's body or had an autopsy done. Um, they just accepted the coroner's word that their daughter had died. True. Um, so... On May 30th, 2006, the Van Ryan family provided medical personnel with Laura's dental records to determine whether or not the girl they'd been caring for for the past five weeks was actually Laura. 
They left the hospital that day as they awaited the results, but they all already knew the answer. And a few hours later, it was confirmed. The girl in the hospital that they'd been caring for for five weeks was not Laura Van Ryn, which meant that Laura had actually died in the accident. It also meant that Whitney Serac was alive. Whitney Serac was born April 29, 1987, in Gaylord, Michigan, to Colleen and Newell Serac. Whitney grew up in a loving home with her sister Carly and family friend Sandra, whom they lovingly referred to as the girl who lives in the basement. Is that loving? The girl who lives in the basement is very was, Harry Potter. That's what, the that's boy what under I was the thinking. Stairs. Mm-hmm. But it was lovingly. They okay. must have had an amazing basement. I, yeah. It was Michigan. Michigan basements are either like your family room or Michigan basements like it's that's a Michigan where the bodies basement. are buried. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's a dirt floor. Yes. I'm guessing it was not that. Whitney and her family are members of the Evangelical Free Church in Gaylord along with 500 other members of the community. Whitney, a freshman at Taylor University in Upland, Indiana, is dating Matt Wheeler, her longtime fellow Christian boyfriend. On April 26, 2006, just a few weeks from the end of the semester, she's riding with eight other passengers in a Taylor University van when a tractor trailer crosses the median of I-69 in upstate Indiana. The crash kills five people, including Whitney. When emergency personnel arrive, there are bodies, purses, wallets, and personal belongings scattered all over the road, which was later described as a very chaotic scene. Right. Just what we have talked about. Mm -hmm. Whitney's purse, found just feet from her body, make it easy for the identification process. Mm. And Laura's, how strange that... That they like swapped. Yeah. You know? That's really weird. I mean, but the impact. Yeah, I mean, who knows what was where. Right. Um, Whitney's sister, Carly, who is also a Taylor University student, is playing tennis with a classmate when news breaks of the accident and the potential that Whitney may have been involved. After many attempts at calling her parents, Carly gets through to her mom finally and alerts her of the situation. But of course, you know, they don't know if Whitney's been involved, they're just saying there's there was an accident with one of the vans. Nobody's heard from Whitney. We have no idea if she was involved or not. Right. Carly not being able to sit and wait. She, you know, she's like, I, I don't know what's going on. She heads to Marion Hospital, which is where they're taking most of the survivors. So now there were two university vans that went on this trip. So it's unclear who would have been in which van. I think that's kind of where some of that confusion came from, if she was in it or not. Right. Um, Finally, a few hours after the initial word of the accident, Newell and Colleen get the phone call that Whitney was, in fact, involved in the accident and has passed away. Mm. Her parents immediately set off on the trip from Gaylord to Marion. This is a five, like over five hour drive. Yeah. So the Van Ryan family, they, they were going essentially to the same area. The Van mm-hmm. Ryan family was a bit closer. Right. Um, but that that's a long, but long Gaylord drive is very night. north mm-hmm. in Michigan. Mm-hmm. Um, we're at the top, that's the top of the mitten. <laughs> is it close to? It's close to the top of the mitten. Um, the middle finger. So it's like the, the right. middle finger. Right. Exactly. Of the I'm sure that's exactly how Gaylord wants to be known. Right. The exactly. Finger of the mitten. <laughs> 
Um, so over five and a half hour drive, which probably felt like an eternity to them. Oh my gosh, I bet. Um, as they approach their exit, they come upon the scene of the accident. They can see the scar where the semi had crossed the median. They slow, they slow down, but they don't stop. Um, just, they were very quiet. You know, just overwhelmed with grief and Mm -hmm. disbelief, you know, basically. Mm -hmm. They make it to the hospital where Colleen finds an employee and asks what needs to be done. The employee contacts the coroner and relays the message to the Cerex that her body had been identified already, so there's nothing left to do. They were absolutely more than welcome to go and view her body, though. Mm. After a short discussion... They decide it's best to remember Whitney in life and not in death and choose not to see her. I don't know what I would do. I mean, I just... I know. You don't know until you're faced with it, it is, which I hope I never am. But. Exactly. And for for me, you know, researching this case, which I'd heard and I knew a lot about it, mm-hmm. um, when I was 15, um, one of my best childhood friends died in a very similar accident mm-hmm. um, where there were multiple fatalities and it was very public. Um, and so all of these things, like going to the site and seeing like those marks in the road and right. all of that, that was all just really, really personal for me. So right. like hearing this and, and researching this, it was real hard to get through a lot of it. Sure, sure. I can only imagine. Um, so because they're in Indiana and they have to get her to Michigan, there's some arrangements that need to be made. Um, and I don't, I don't know, this is a weird off topic, but I've had friends who've had family members that have passed away in other states from accidents Okay, and they've said it was a nightmare to get them back home. Ugh. And I don't know if it's different states specific. I mean, shouldn't there be a pretty, it's gotta be a should somewhat be a process. common thing. There should mm-hmm. be a pretty similar process. Mm-hmm. I, I mean, I've heard horror stories like, the state has messed up the death certificate, and it was a long process, like days, to get the person back home. It shouldn't be like that. Mm-hmm. There's something that needs to simplify that process, I think. Upon arriving home, they are greeted to trays of food that had been dropped off by members of their church. The support and comfort of their church and community and their faith in God's bigger plan gave them strength to carry on. On April 28, 2006, the Syriac family prepared themselves for their final goodbyes to Whitney. They arrived at the church just before the service is ready to start, only to realize they had forgotten to pick up Newell's mother on the way. Um, the night before was her viewing. Yes. Which was also Whitney's 19th birthday. Oh, my God. Yeah. Not a fun fact, but I, I can't even imagine. That's no. not how you should be celebrating. I, I just, that's, that. <laughs> Because everything's comparative. You think about all of the things you're going to miss and all of the things she's going to miss. Mm-hmm. And for her birthday to be the very first thing um, to be, you know. It really doesn't even give you that opportunity to have, you know, they always say like the first holiday is the worst and or the first year of holidays yeah. is the worst. But that doesn't even give you that opportunity to grieve that because you're so busy with talking to everybody, making the plans for the, you know, funeral arrangements and just dealing with the chaos and it's her birthday and you don't really have a a minute to even sit and think about that. So then you have to wait a whole year until you reach your birthday again. That's crazy. Just sad. So, um, so they forget to pick up grandma 
And in a frenzy, they make the call, they apologize, offer to have someone come and pick her up. She declines. She says, oh, that's not Whitney in there anyway, referring to her spiritually. Right. But in, you know, retrospect, looking back. That's crazy. She had no idea she meant it in a literal sense at all. Wow. Yeah. So fast forward about five weeks, the Syriac family is starting to find their new norm. They begin to adjust to life while having just lost a child. How do you? Like, it's not a new norm. Like, nothing's ever normal again, which I actually think they say at, at one point. Yeah. Um. Newell, who is a youth pastor, sets off on his first ministry trip since the accident to upstate New York. While gone, Colleen gets a phone call at 2 o'clock in the morning. Which, if I remember correctly, the original phone call came kind of in the middle of the night as well. Mm-hmm. Right. But in today's age of everyone's got a cell phone, it's you call people whenever Right. But cell phones, yeah, people had them, but they weren't like a huge mm-hmm. to where still at that point, if your phone's ringing at two in the morning, something's wrong. Right. Like, I think the smartphones were just Just a thing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, the man introduces himself as the Marion Cor- County Coroner. He, this is the same man who had called them to give them notification that Whitney had died. Mm. He asked Colleen to get someone up in the house so that she does not have to take this phone call alone. And could you, I mean... So that they had set two, you off in panic. Well, but they had two kids. Mm-hmm. One of them's dead. The other one's in the house with her. So when you think like, I've got the coroner who told me my daughter was dead mm-hmm. on the phone telling me I can't be alone for what he's about to say... What could he possibly say? Well, dad's out of town. That's true. But the, I, he wasn't in Ohio or not Ohio, Indiana. He no. wasn't in Indiana. Right. Um, like what could this man possibly have to say to you that's worse than your And that's probably your daughter what was died. going through her head. Exactly. Like what now? This can't be happening. Um. So he asked her to get somebody up. Okay. You know, he, he says, I can't talk. To, you cannot take this phone call by yourself. Okay. So she gets up Carly. Her daughter, who is staying with her. Also, Sandra, who's the girl that lives in the basement. The girl under the stairs. Yeah. Okay. She lives there as well. Um, So they listen in on the phone call with their mom. Okay. The man states the girl identified as Whitney at the accident may not have been her, and the girl in the hospital bed in Grand Rapids, who'd been recovering from the accident, could possibly be Whitney. Which what do you do with that? You know, you just woke me up. But they were aware of Laura. Mm -hmm. Laura was the only student that survived. So when I talked about that blog, they were following along with the blog. Right. They had sent well wishes to the Van Ryan family. So they knew very well who about the girl in the hospital. Um and so for them to then find out after a month, like that might be your daughter. That's right. crazy. Right. So Colleen says, I basically can't comprehend what you're saying. What is your phone number? I'm going to have to call you back. Takes down his phone number. Her and Sandra start talking. Or, I'm sorry, Carly. Her and Carly are talking. Carly's going, this is a terrible joke. It's a prank. This is a prank. Because that. Who would do would this? something like that even happen? Yeah, this is disgusting. Don't bother calling back. This is horrible. Um, and these things don't happen. It's 2006. Right. This We're not we're, talking about something that happened in the 70s. Right, right. Like our technology is advanced. You 
yeah, we're good to go. Um, so she calls her family friend Jim, who he had been accompanying them like through this entire through, through the whole death process. And her husband's out of state. Her husband's out of state. He's with seniors in high school. She's like, I'm not. I'm not going to bother him right now. I don't need to frazzle him. If it's not true. If it's not true, this is a horrible thing to do to me. I'm not going to do it to him. Right. Exactly. So Jim calls the coroner. He says, yes, he verifies this information. I need you to bring dental records. So he calls Colleen back. He's like, this is exactly what they're telling us. This was the coroner. It's real. Yeah. Call your dentist. So she calls the dentist in the middle of the night, and he rushes over and brings her these records, which crazy? I think is so incredible. Yeah. I'm like, I wonder if my dentist would do that. My dentist would not. No, you no. know what? My dentist is cool as hell. She absolutely would do that. You think so? But I don't have her home phone number. Know, right. Like, how do you get a, I mean, the emergency line? I I don't know. Can and you do have they a answer? dental emergency at 2 a.m.? That I, I get your dentist out of bed? I don't know. That's don't weird, know. though. So anyway, um, so Jim, this family friend, comes over. Picks all the girls up and takes them to Grand Rapids. Okay. So Grand Rapids is not as far from Gaylord Mm-mm. as... It's a couple hours, yeah. though. And at, you know, probably now three o'clock in the morning at this point. And what's going through your head? That's just... It's just an unbelievable scenario. Like, like you don't want to get too excited? Because what if it's not? Then you go through that whole sadness again? Yeah. I don't know. Ugh. So she calls her husband, Newell. Good. This is what's possibly going on. Stay tuned. Basically, I'll call you when I get there. Stay tuned. Hang on. Just don't worry about it, but our daughter might be alive. So he's like freaking out. Of course. You know, he's states away, freaking out. They finally get to Grand Rapids. They enter the hospital room. On the the plate on the door says Laura Van Ryn. Ugh. And at this point, the Van Ryan family already knows. Yep, and they're not there. And they're, they're gone. gone. Um, so they see Laura's name on the plate, but they enter the room and they realize it is their Whitney Lane in bed. Oh, my God. Overcome with joy, they lose their minds. Absolutely. Um, as anyone would do, you know. But they did so loudly that the nurses had to come in and tell them that they needed to calm down. Because it still is a brain injury patient. Yes. And that overstimulation will yeah, yeah. could possibly injure her or exactly. create a panic for exactly. her. So, I mean, but, I mean, how can you not lose your mind? You I thought just, that your child was dead five weeks ago. You know, yeah. when you went to bed that night, you thought your child was dead. I just... Oh, it's it's everything about it's unbelievable because mm-hmm. as we're talking about like this wonderful moment for this Cirax, yes, the Van Rines are doing the exact opposite, and there's just what do I do? Everything you about know? this is just h- horrific, right? It's just unbelievable. N- yeah, it's a nightmare. Not, so, uh, and it's not. And it's it not, is, it's and real. it's not. Right. Colleen calls Newell. And over the phone, he's able to speak with his daughter. He thought he lost five weeks earlier. So the C-Rec family now staying in Grand Rapids. Well, So wait, just real quick, how did Whitney, I mean, they see Whitney, they freak out, but this f- poor fucking girl, right. she's almost died. She's got mm-hmm. broken bones. She's battered. She's in the hospital and she's not lucid for a good portion of this five weeks, but then she is. Right. And these people that are... 
she's got a brain injury, so the confusion is real and the mm-hmm. um, but she fuzziness is real. But she does know that these aren't her fam she, because she says it. She says right. it many times. These aren't my family. She calls. Uh, Laura's sister by her own sister's name. Right. She's calling Laura's boyfriend by what turned out to be the family dog's name. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, like, it just... Right. How upsetting. What had to be going through her head as she gained back her lucidity and these people are going, we're your family, honey. You are right. Laura. And she knows she's, she's not. Like not. But then her real family comes in. She doesn't understand what's happened. So I'd be pissed. I'd be like, where the fuck have you been? I've been going through it over here. Where were you? Right. Talk about family support. Um, But she's like, hi. You know, like this is Just so relieved that they're finally here. That's all she's wanted. She just needed that comfort, you know. So they're all staying with her through recovery. They take shifts, spending time with her. She's requesting day after day after day for Hunter to come and visit. Hunter. (laughs) I have a Hunter, too. Figuring out when the right time is, the dad finally allows her, the family dog, to come and visit. So, and how, you know, who the family, the Van Ryan family, thought she was referring to her boyfriend, Aaron. She was. She Hunter, was calling Aaron Hunter. When really, and she kept asking him for a kiss. And at one point she said, get up here and lay on the bed like a real human with me. And they were like, what? Right. Right. Um, so she equated... Aaron thinks he's taking care of the girl that he's going to marry mm-hmm. once she's through this. And she's equating him with the love she's got for her dog, her dog. which on one hand is sweet because he must have been such a comfort to her and so mm-hmm. kind and caring and loving. But so how heartbreaking for him. Oh, yeah. I mean, everybody with the Van Ryn family. Yeah. Broken hearts. Um, so Whitney makes her recovery. Later that fall, she returns to Taylor University, where she graduates four years later. She goes on to marry Matt Wheeler. No, oh, her boyfriend. Her boyfriend. And moves to North Carolina, and she now has three children. Oh. It's, it's, that's beautiful, and it's... It's really beautiful, and it's so tragic all at the same as time. Being as far removed from the situation as we are even, um, can't imagine being closer being right. part of one of those families because they both sound like amazing groups of people. So you're the Serax, you are the happiest you've ever been, but you're mourning and grieving for this poor family. And you're the Van Rines, you're happy for the Serax, but you right. now have to mourn the loss of your daughter, which right. is just insane. And when Whitney finally, she gets a copy of a People magazine mm-hmm. with her and Laura's picture side by side on the cover. Mm-hmm. And she's not understanding. Why are they saying I'm her? What is going on? Like, this causes mass confusion for her. As she's still recovering from her brain injury. Yeah, she's still recovering. She does not. This is like the first, you know, they've kind of given her a little bit. We thought you were, you know, but I don't think it really like sunk in. Mm -hmm. And she sees the People magazine, still doesn't get it. And she has to keep coming back to it after multiple days. And she has... No memory of the five weeks that the Van Rines took care of her. She didn't remember them at all. Um, I I remember reading that Lisa, Laura's sister, came to visit her at some point because Mm -hmm. she wasn't only invested in her as 
you know, thinking it was her sister, she was participating in her therapy and she was helping her recover. So this is still a girl that you've been helping to bring back from the dead for five weeks. Mm -hmm. No, it's not your sister, but she still cared about her. So she went to visit her. And when she went to the hospital, Whitney had no idea who she was. She didn't remember her at all, probably because that was so confusing. And her brain was so traumatized Mm -hmm. that it just didn't keep that information because it made no sense to her, you know, because these people made no sense to her. Right. Five days after the identity switch was discovered, the Van Rines held a memorial for Laura. Uh, They later had her body exhumed and relocated from a cemetery in Gaylord to one in Grand Rapids, closer to home. The driver of the semi that caused the accident, Robert Spencer, was convicted of reckless homicide and criminal recklessness after it was discovered that he had driven his rig nine hours longer than the law allows. He was sentenced in 2007 to eight years in prison, but only served two years total in the end. And one part that I just remembered I left out, he was actually in the same hospital as Mm -hmm. Whitney Serac when they thought she was Laura. So he was recovering in that same hospital. Um, And reporters would show up and try to, you know, go Laura's family into, oh, he's here. Have you seen him? What are you going to say to him when you see him? Mm -hmm. And they were just very, very forgiving and very gracious in a way that I don't know if I could be. Um, I think that's where their religion really comes into play. Yeah. Yeah. Um, So the Syriac and Van Ryan families remained close. They met for breakfast on the one-year anniversary of the accident where they decided to tell their story together. They co-wrote a book called Mistaken Identity, Two Families, One Survivor, Unwavering Hope, that was published in 2008. So we read the book. We did read the book. It's really a good book. It is a good book. And I, so my thing is I'm super old school. I still have CDs in my car, which, (laughs) why? I don't know. Um, I like paper books. um, And maybe that's the writer in me. I like paper books. I'll read them. I, I see the value absolutely of a Kindle. Um, or a, a whatever, electronic right. reader. You're like um, Carrie from Sex and the City, like yes. the smell of the book. I like bookstores. I like books. Mm-hmm. I'll read them in a pinch on um, my phone, mm-hmm. but I don't usually do audiobooks. Mm-hmm. For the sake of time, I did one for this. I, I We both did the audiobook. Mm-hmm. Um, and I cried. <laughs> I, I cried. Through most of it, I think because of the thing that, um, you know, I've been through a very traumatic accident um, with someone close to me. And I've also been more than once in a situation where I thought I was losing my child, Um, not to be in any way overdramatic. I know there are people that have epilepsy and it's manageable and it's livable. Um, But A, when this all first started for us and then... Um, in the subsequent events that have occurred, they are very violent. They have caused heart problems. Right. Um, they're very dangerous for mm-hmm. my son, the type that he has. Right. And so, Listen, my daughter gets a cold and I freak out. Yeah. So, I so compl- we've done I the, understand. the trauma, the hospital, mm-hmm. the ICU more than once. And so, no, I've never been through this. I mean, God, nobody's been through this. This is insane. Right. But it hit home in a lot of ways to where I was just a mess. I was just sobbing mm-hmm. through so much of this book. Um, but it is a really good book. It so is. I think really that good. you guys absolutely should check it out. Mm-hmm. We'll post the link to it on the website. Right. And 
also just a little fact here. So you would think that, you know, I mean, this was a national story. Yes. Everybody knew this. Mm -hmm. Since this, there have been two other accidents that have created a misidentification. (gasps) Where? One in Canada. Okay. And there was one in Arizona. Oh, my gosh. And they didn't last nearly as long as five weeks. But they were days. Now, were they, do you they know? They were car accidents. Were they, though, like fatality to where everyone died? Or was it a similar situation where they thought one person was dead and it was the other? I think there's both scenarios. There's one where there's, I think both of them were like two people. Okay. So two people in the Arizona one, I believe. Right. And they just switched and but they were, were they men. both dead? I think they were men. Or did, was one of them alive? I think one was alive. Okay, so they... Mm-hmm. Okay. So and then similar. Canada might be the same situation. Okay. And then about a month before this accident, Taylor University had another accident. Oh, my that God. some students had died That's in as well. Insane. And it just... I mean... So Whitney had a headstone. Like, you can see pictures of mm-hmm, it. Mm-hmm. She was buried. She had a headstone. She had a funeral. Yeah. So I read an interview with her where she said, you know, people are always like... I wonder what people would say about me at my funeral. <laughs> she, she said, said not I know sports. because they recorded her funeral and she actually watched right. the video of her own funeral. Like what a weird feeling. How? I don't know if I, eh, I would want to see that. I would too. I want to see what people, see what people are saying about uh-huh. me after they think I'm gone. Kidding me? All right. Well, thank you guys so much for making us a part of your day. Remember to rate, review, and subscribe to the podcast and follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Podcast. Now, we always say that, remember to rate, review, and subscribe, but we want to take a minute to acknowledge how important that really is to us because ratings, reviews, and subscribers are really what makes the podcasting world go round. So Dead is a passion project for us. We put a lot of time and way too much money into it. Um, so it means the world to us when you guys take the time to tell us that you're digging it. The more reviews and subscribers we have, the more visibility So Dead will have on iTunes and other podcast players. So it's really so it really does matter to us. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so we've decided that once a month we're going to shout out all of our listeners that have taken the time to leave us reviews on iTunes or on our Facebook page. Remember when shout outs on the radio were like mm-hmm. the biggest thing in middle school and high school? Five power jams. <laughs> I'd like to give a shout out. And what was the other one? Was 101.7 like Lansing's hit music? Uh, mm-hmm. It's 97.5 now mm-hmm. is the but top 40, but it was 101.7 back when we were or 95 point 96 point 95 FM when we were real young. Mm-hmm. And then 1017. Mm-hmm. And, and then and now it's 97. Yeah, yeah, I know. None of this matters. We digress. <laughs> um, so, yeah, and so much drama went down during those nighttime shout outs. Oh, I remember. I want to give a shout out to Brandon, who's not my boyfriend yet, but he's going to be. <laughs> I remember those. Oh. <laughs> so much drama. Uh, anyway. Um, yeah. So today we'd like to send a huge so dead thank you to the following iTunes listeners that have left us wonderful reviews. Magna Doodle 0717, Yumps Cole, Serena's Mom, Kuga 1970, <laughs> hey, Kuga. Kuga. hey Kuga, Jesse B 78, Texas Race Girl 88, Carolyn 0211, Hockey Town Girl 25, Pod Addict T, Dolce Gribble, I like that handle. Yeah. 
CKH2003, Samantha K88, KDIB0418. Is that your mom? Yeah, that's my mom. <laughs> Ladybug1202 and Busy Mom Weaver. Yes, thank you guys so much. You're all awesome. We'd also like to thank the following Facebook fans that have left us reviews. Aaron Sharp, Shanna Anderson, Kelly Couples-Matson, Kara Richards, Jamie Dibian-Mullen, Paige Ann Hobbs, Carrie Pline, Autumn Alden, Megan Felice, Sarah Wilson, Josh Marshall, Josh Cole, Tina Rositas Ziegler, Katrina Cox, Joe and Deb Madden, Amanda Carter, Nicole Gores, Renee Brock, Angela Strauss, Joey Marie, Ashley Killips, Brenda Rogers, Erica Cooper, Melanie McNamara, and Bonnie Thurston. If you'd like us to give you a shout out, leave us a review on iTunes or Facebook or both. That's right. We don't ask for dollars to say your name on our podcast. We just ask for kind words. Or I guess if you murdered someone, we'd probably wind up talking about you eventually. But please don't do that. They would not be with kind words. No, and this is much easier. So much easier. That's right. So now get out there and shine. You magnificent what the fucks. 